0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Headquarters, 3rd Brigade, 19 miles from Chattanooga, September 18th, 1863. My dear, once more I have an opportunity to write a few words. We have continued to march since last I wrote, and are still laying here, ready at a moment's notice for anything. The rebels are in our front, and we may have to fight a battle. If we do, it will be apt to be a big one. Do not feel uneasy for me. I am well and in good spirits, and trusting to my usual good luck. I shall use all the caution and courage I am capable of, and leave the rest to take care of itself. The soldiers are in tolerable good condition. Many of ours, however, have marched hard and had a rough time for the last two weeks, and ought to have a few days rest before fighting. Our train is not with us, but I have one headquarters wagon with me and get along well. Old Rosie's headquarters are only a few miles from here. I think if it is true that the rebels have not gone, that he will give them one of the biggest whippings they ever had. Thus far, Rosie's army has gained a tremendous victory by forcing Bragg to leave Chattanooga. I can, of course, say nothing about the prospects of getting home, but as soon as this present campaign is ended, I am certain of being able to come. We have had such hard work marching over these mountains that we are entitled to some rest my love to the children. Goodbye, my darling. Write often, but do not expect to hear from me very often till the campaign is over. Your own Hans. Colonel Hans Christian Heg, Brigade Commander, 20th Corps, Army of the Cumberland.
0: The Norwegian-born Haig grew up in Wisconsin, spent a year as a 49er in California, and later gained prominence in Wisconsin state politics. In 1861, he was commissioned a colonel and recruited Scandinavian immigrants into the 15th Wisconsin Infantry. He was mortally wounded the day after writing this letter.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 395th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is
0: Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all will recall in the last episode, we saw Braxton Bragg struggle in his attempt to strike and cripple isolated portions of the Federal Army. Right.
1: Well, Macklemore's Cove is one of the most famous missed opportunities of the Civil War, But hard on the heels of that failure, Bragg also tried to attack a vulnerable part of the enemy's 21st Corps, only to have that plan also fall apart.
0: Braxton Bragg was disgusted and frustrated. For a week, he had been marching and counter-marching his army, all to no avail. Now, the troops needed rest and resupply, and Bragg needed new ideas.
1: By September 14th, Bragg had most of the Army of Tennessee concentrated once again around the town of Lafayette, Georgia, about 25 miles south of Chattanooga, and a dozen or so miles south of Lee and Gordon's Mills on Chickamauga Creek. While the men rested and drew three days' rations, Bragg contemplated his next move.
0: During this lull, Bragg's headquarters, for a change, received mostly positive news. For example, Bragg could breathe a sigh of relief when he heard that after capturing Knoxville, Burnside's Federal Army seemed content to remain there, so there no longer seemed much of a threat of a link-up between him and Rosecrans.
1: More importantly, Bragg's numbers were growing as reinforcements from Mississippi and from Virginia were either beginning to arrive or were reported to be just a few days away.
0: Meanwhile on the federal side the truth had gradually dawned on William Rosecrans that the Confederates weren't in headlong retreat. Rosecrans had finally realized that Bragg had in fact assumed a highly menacing posture that threatened the army of the Cumberland with defeat in detail.
1: On September 12th Rosecrans responded to the danger by issuing orders for the three widely separated corps of his army to reunite as rapidly as possible. Fortunately for Rosecrans, the time he needed to accomplish this concentration coincided with the lull in Confederate operations, while the rebels rested and resupplied in Lafayette and Bragg pondered his next move.
0: By September 17, the Army of the Cumberland's three Corps had aligned themselves behind Chickamauga Creek, facing east. McCook's 20th Corps was on the right, Thomas's 14th Corps was in the center, and Crittenden's 21st Corps was on the left.
1: Rosecrans' three Corps were no longer vulnerable to piecemeal destruction now that the Army had been reunited, but Old Rosie was still concerned about the gap of a dozen miles that existed between Crittenden's left and the garrison at Chattanooga. Rosecrans had to content himself with screening this area with Colonel Robert Minty's Cavalry Brigade. To backstop this outcoast line, Rosecrans also ordered Granger's Reserve Corps to march for Rossville, midway between Lee and Gordon's Mills and Chattanooga.
0: By the by, but here at Chickamauga, Granger's Reserve Corps, commanded by Major General Gordon Granger, was in reality a division-sized formation with three brigades.
1: Exactly. Well, at any rate, by September 17th, the Army of the Cumberland and the Army of Tennessee faced each other with the Federals on the west bank of Chickamauga Creek and the Confederates on the east. They were far enough apart to be out of contact except for scouts and cavalry patrols. But nevertheless, the preliminaries were over, and now the opposing armies were like two heavyweight boxers who had entered the arena and were waiting in their respective corners, waiting for the bell to ring and the fight to begin.
0: Despite the miscarriage of his earlier plans, Bragg still sought to deliver a knockout blow to the Yankee army. Freshly reinforced and with more men on the way, Bragg was confident he had the resources to deliver such a blow. The only question was where to strike.
1: Well, there was that yawning gap between Rosecrans left and Chattanooga. The small Union garrison holding Chattanooga, no more than a few thousand men, couldn't stretch to cover much beyond the town limits. Old Rosie was not unaware of the peril, so, as we mentioned a moment ago, he'd ordered the three brigades of Granger's Reserve Corps to move to Rossville, blocking the gap of that name in Missionary Ridge and covering the road to Chattanooga at that spot.
0: However, Rosecrans knew that those 6,000 men wouldn't be able to completely cover the gap between the Army and Chattanooga if the rebels attempted to turn his left in force. He knew that even with Granger's troops at Rossville, that still left miles of uncovered countryside between Crittenden's left at Lee and Gordon's Mills and Chattanooga.
1: And it was precisely that situation that Braxton Bragg sought to turn to his advantage. Bragg formulated a new plan to strike the federal left flank with a good portion of his army by crossing Chickamauga Creek north of Crittenden and then sweeping south like a massive tidal wave, cutting Rosecrans off from Chattanooga, and pushing the Yankee army back into McLemore's Cove and crushing it against the mountains.
0: From its source in Mclemore's Cove, Chickamauga Creek winds its way north to the Tennessee River near Chattanooga. In the days leading up to the battle, the stream created a natural barrier between the two armies, being 80 to 100 feet wide, deep in places, and with high banks that made it impossible for organized bodies of troops to easily cross except at a few fords and bridges and it
1: was two of those bridges that figured prominently in the initial stage of Bragg's plan. With the left flank of Crittenden's 21st Corps, that is, the left flank of the Army of the Cumberland, anchored at Lee and Gordon's Mills, Bragg planned to send a strong force across Chickamauga Creek on September 18th at Reed's Bridge and Alexander's Bridge, which were both downstream, or north of, Crittenden's position at Lee and Gordon's Mills.
0: Bragg's goal was simple, since essentially he was seeking to turn the Union left, but he'd come up with a rather complicated, multi-stage plan to accomplish that simple goal. Buckle your seatbelt, because we're about to walk you through Bragg's rather complicated, multi-stage plan.
1: First, Brigadier General Bushrod Johnson, commanding a provisional division, consisting of his own brigade and the first troops arriving from Virginia, would advance and cross the Chickamauga at Reed's Bridge. Major General John B. Hood would assume command of this force when he arrived on the scene from Virginia.
0: Then, once across the creek, that force, led by Bushrod Johnson or John B. Hood, would lead an an advance that swept upstream, or southwestward, toward the Lafayette Road, blocking the Federal Army's direct route to Chattanooga and threatening Crittenden's flank at Lee and Gordon's Mills.
1: While that force crossed the Chickamauga at Reed's Bridge, another force, led by Major General William H.T. Walker, would cross a bit farther upstream, or to the south, at Alexander's Bridge, And then, after Johnson-slash-Hood had swept past, Walker would close up behind them to support the sweep toward the Lafayette Road and Lee and Gordon's mills.
0: Meanwhile, Major General Simon Bolivar Buckner's two divisions, led by Major General Alexander P. Stewart and Brigadier General William B. Preston, would cross the creek at Thedford's Ford and Dalton's Ford, to fall in on the left flank of the Johnson-Hood-Walker force as it swept by, adding yet more weight to that thrust.
2: In
1: order to prevent the Federals from reacting to that growing threat downstream, Major General Benjamin Cheatham's division was ordered to move up and support Major General Thomas Hindman's division, thereby uniting Polk's corps in front of Lee and Gordon's mills and fixing Rosecrans' attention there.
0: Brigadier General Nathan Bedford Forrest's cavalry troopers were expected to screen these movements, speeding the rebel infantry across the creek and preventing enemy interference.
1: So there you go. From north to south, the Confederates would cross the Chickamauga at Reed's Bridge and Alexander's Bridge, and the two forts, Thedford's and Dalton's, and they'd sweep southwestward toward the Lafayette Road and Lee and Gordons Mills, while Cheatham and Hindman fixed the Federals there so they couldn't react to the gray and butternut tide rolling down on their left flank.
0: As we said, Rosecrans had already posted Minty's cavalry brigade to keep watch at Reed's Bridge to provide some warning of exactly the kind of maneuver Bragg was contemplating. Now, Old Rosie also deployed Colonel John T. Wilder's brigade of mounted infantry, the Lightning Brigade, to watch the crossing at Alexander's Bridge.
1: Rosecrans' commitment of, arguably, his two best mounted brigades to protect his vulnerable left flank shows he was aware of the possible peril downstream. However, Minty had only three regiments and Wilder another four. That meant there would be fewer than 3,000 Federals directly in the path of Bragg's proposed juggernaut.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.
0: Braxton Bragg closed his latest set of attack orders by saying, quote, The movement will be executed with the utmost promptness, vigor, and persistence.
1: But, in keeping with the finest traditions of the dysfunctional and hard-luck Army of Tennessee, the movement on September 18th was late, confused, and poorly executed.
0: For all Bragg's determination, nearly everything went wrong that day, starting with the fact that before the Confederates could sweep down on Rosecrans' left, they first had to get across Chickamauga Creek. But despite Bragg's demand for speed, all three of the formations he had chosen to lead the turning movement were late getting to their crossing points.
1: Also, although Nathan Bedford Forrest's cavalry troopers were supposed to screen the movements of the Confederate infantry columns and prevent federal interference with their crossings, Forrest's horsemen, in reality, weren't positioned to carry out that assignment. In fact, on the 18th, of Forrest's two divisions, he had only one brigade, led by Brigadier General John Pegram, at hand to do the job Bragg was expecting him to do. And, when all was said and done on the 18th, Pegram's brigade would contribute next to nothing to helping the Rebel foot soldiers get across Chickamauga Creek.
0: As for the Rebel infantry, Bushrod Johnson's column, which was to kick off Bragg's turning movement by crossing at Reed's Bridge, had trouble even getting to the bridge, as that morning he was following an outdated order so Johnson took the wrong road and had to be rerouted.
1: That countermarch ate up most of the morning, and then when Johnson did encounter the enemy, he didn't find them at Reed's Bridge, but on Peavine Ridge, east of Chickamauga Creek. This was Robert Minty's Federal Cavalry. Minty had established an initial defensive line on the ridge, covering the approaches to Reed's Bridge.
0: His force consisted of the 4th Michigan Cavalry, a section of guns from the Chicago Board of Trade Battery, and a battalion of the 4th U.S. Before the rebels appeared, the line was reinforced by an additional battalion of the 7th Pennsylvania Cavalry, just returned from an early morning patrol.
1: Bushrod Johnson didn't encounter the Federals on Vine Ridge until almost 11 a.m., hours later than Bragg had intended for him to be across the creek. Well, neither Forrest nor any other rebel cavalry were around when he encountered the Federals on Peavine Ridge, so Johnson, uncertain of the opposition he faced, halted his column and deployed a Tennessee infantry brigade led by Colonel John S. Fulton into line of battle.
0: Fulton shook out skirmishers and began to probe the Federal defenses. Lieutenant Colonel Watt Floyd of the 7th Tennessee and his adjutant rode forward with the skirmishers to see how strongly the Yankees were posted along Peavine Creek.
1: Concealed behind a cabin across the creek, Private Samuel Walters of Company F of the 7th Pennsylvania Cavalry could clearly see the two mounted rebel officers across the way. Walters raised his Smith carbine, took aim, and pulled the trigger. Although he missed the Confederates, he'd just fired the first shot of the Battle of Chickamauga.
0: The combat heated up as the Rebel skirmishers traded shots with the Yankee cavalrymen in front of Peavine Ridge. Bushrod Johnson's Confederates outnumbered Minty's Federal Cavalry Troopers 6 to 1, but this was Johnson's first experience commanding anything larger than a brigade, and he proceeded cautiously.
1: Minty, in what proved to be a masterful execution of what the modern military would call a covering force action, brought the rebels almost to a halt. The fire from the dismounted Federal horse soldiers and the Union artillery forced Johnson to deploy a sizable portion of his force from marching column into line of battle. Then, just as the Confederates began to advance, the Yankees would run back to their horses, mount up, and ride back to another position, where the whole process was repeated again. Minty's skillful resistance slowed Johnson's already tentative advance to a crawl.
0: Self-inflicted delays on the Confederate side had frittered away most of the morning, but Minty's stubborn defense cost Johnson the entire afternoon. Despite first contact coming at 11 a.m., Johnson didn't secure Reed's Bridge over Chickamauga Creek until nearly 2 p.m., and he didn't force Minty to disengage for another two hours at around 4 o'clock.
1: It was sometime around 3 p.m. when John B. Hood showed up on the scene. Hood was still recuperating from an arm wound received at Gettysburg in July. He was in Richmond in early September when the Confederate War Department ordered Longstreet's troops to travel from Virginia to reinforce Bragg. At the time, Hood's division was still commanded by his senior brigadier, Evander Law of Alabama.
0: Some of Hood's officers visited him while they passed through Richmond and asked him to join them on their trip west. Hood couldn't resist the call to action, and he agreed immediately. On September eighteenth, when Hood arrived at Catoosa Station, just a few miles south of Ringgold, Georgia, on the Western and Atlantic Railroad, a courier greeted him with orders from Bragg, directing him to proceed at once to Reed's Bridge and take command of Bushrod Johnson's column. Until James Longstreet arrived on the scene, Bragg wanted Hood leading the troops who had already arrived from Virginia.
1: Anxious to get back into action, Hood hurried to the freight car that held his horse. With his left arm in a sling, he gripped the reins in his right hand, applied the spurs, and his horse leapt from the train, and he rode toward Reed's Bridge, where he arrived about three o'clock. Most of his men hadn't seen Hood since Gettysburg, and they cheered him when he arrived at the front. Though he would take credit in his memoirs for orchestrating the final stages of the action at Reed's Bridge, Hood, in reality, arrived only after Bushrod Johnson's last push against Minty was already well underway.
0: While the action was developing at Peavine Ridge and Reed's Bridge, the second part of Bragg's plan, that is, the crossing to the south at Alexander's Bridge, was also running into trouble. To
1: begin with, that morning, Walker's troops, who were to cross at Alexander's Bridge, and Buckner's men, who were to cross the creek at Thedford's Ford and Dalton's Ford, got all tangled up when they both found themselves taking the same road toward their intended objectives. A sizable traffic jam resulted, and both forces were considerably delayed.
0: When Walker finally approached Chickamauga Creek with his infantry about noon, some of Pegram's rebel cavalry told him that earlier they had run into some remarkably fast-shooting Yankees who were guarding Alexander's Bridge.
1: This, of course, was Wilder's lightning brigade with their formidable Spencer repeating rifles. Arriving on the scene the night before, John Wilder had deployed his command in the fields bordering the road leading down to the creek and around the Alexander House. The four rifled guns of Captain Eli Lilly's 18th Indiana Battery were positioned adjacent to the house.
0: Before things really heated up on his own front, Wilder could already hear the sounds of battle drifting southward from Minty's fight at Peavine Ridge. It wasn't long before Wilder received a plea from Minty for assistance. He responded at once, sending most of two regiments north to Minty's aid.
1: That left Wilder with less than a thousand men to defend Alexander's Bridge. But they were armed with a fast shooting, seven-shot Spencers, and Wilder also kept Lily's battery close at
0: hand. About noon, when Walker's Confederate infantry approached the creek, he ordered an assault to take the bridge. That unfortunate task fell to the Mississippi Brigade of Brigadier General Edward Walthall.
1: Ironically, one year and one day earlier, Walthall, then Colonel of the Twenty-Ninth Mississippi, had fought Wilder at Munfordville, Kentucky, where Wilder was forced to surrender but now John Wilder would have some revenge.
0: Under the eye of his division commander, Brigadier General St. John Little, Wathel formed his men for the assault, deploying along the east side of the Alexander's Bridge Road. As support, Little ordered Colonel Daniel Govin's Arkansas Brigade to deploy on the west side of the road.
1: Skirmishers were deployed, and then Wathel ordered his brigade to advance. The Mississippians surged forward, but things seemed to unravel for them almost immediately. Their route toward the creek and bridge was over very broken ground and through a thick patch of vines and bushes, which caused the right of the brigade to lose its alignment. Meanwhile, the rest of the brigade drifted westward until the unit in the center, the 29th Mississippi, was advancing down the road.
0: As the Mississippians came into view, about 350 yards from the bridge, Sergeant James Barnes of the 72nd Indiana was impressed by the sight. He would later recall, quote, They came up in splendid style, their step firm, even and steady, bayonets fixed and gleaming in the sun.
1: That inspiring scene, however, was soon shattered when Lily's guns opened fire, hurling shells into the ranks of the Mississippians. Confederate artillery responded, but it was outmatched and outranged by the Federals' rifled guns. Then, as Wathel's men approached the creek, Wilder's Yankees let loose with their Spencers. The Mississippians came to a halt and then fell back. They reformed and advanced once again, but were again stopped.
0: Walthall realized that there was no use trying again. The Federals had ripped the flooring from the bridge and used the planking to construct a small fort in the road on their side of the creek. Not only that, but the Mississippians couldn't easily dispense with the bridge and force a crossing here because the Chickamauga was, in Walthall's words, quote, deep, the banks steep and impassable.
1: Learning of all this, Walker ordered the battered Mississippians to break off the assault. Walker looked for some other, less well-defended crossing, and by late afternoon had found one, about a mile and a half downstream, or to the north, at Byram's Ford, which was unguarded. Walker's troops headed there and started to cross the Chickamauga. In doing so, they outflanked Wilder's Federals at Alexander's Bridge and Wilder, as a result, had to order his men to fall back up the Alexander's Bridge Road.
0: While all of that had been going on, Buckner's column of rebels, a short distance to the south, came to a halt at Thedford's and Dalton's Fords. Buckner had moved to secure the crossing, but then he waited for further developments.
1: Wilder's stand at Alexander's Bridge had cost him a handful of men killed and wounded, but it inflicted more than 100 casualties among Wathel's Mississippians. And, most importantly, like Minty's delaying action at Reed's Bridge, it bought critical time. Because even though the Confederates were now across the Chickamauga, it was too late in the day for them to launch Bragg's intended attack down the West Bank on Crittenden's flank at Lee and Gordon's Mills. And so, having run out of daylight on the 18th, the Confederates would have to wait for the next morning to continue their attack.
0: On the forenoon of the 18th, we were skirmishing when we met the enemy, a little more than 5,000 strong. Seeing that we were outnumbered, our brigade fell back to the Chickamauga, crossing it at Alexander's Bridge. Here we made our stand. Our regiment was a few hundred yards from the river, close to the old Alexander House, where we supported Lily's battery.
1: We were west of the road, the 98th Illinois Regiment east of the road, while the rest of the brigade were down near the bridge, the floor of which they had torn up and used to make a defense. At three o'clock the rebels came up and attacked us, both with artillery and small arms. Lily's battery replied, firing continuously into their ranks. Once I heard a rebel cannonball strike to our right, and turning, we all tried to see what damage had been done, but from where we were we could see nothing, but the report soon came that it had struck the adjutant, carrying away part of one of his legs, He was quickly taken in an ambulance to the rear.
0: The firing was continuous till about four o'clock. In the meantime, Colonel Wilder sent part of our brigade to the assistance of Colonel Minty, who was stationed at Reed's Bridge about two miles farther up the Chickamauga and who had reported he was being very hard-pressed at that point. Though weakened by this movement, yet we were able to hold the rebels back.
1: At four o'clock the report reached us that the rebels had forded the river both above and below us and were threatening our flanks. Thereupon we mounted our horses and fell back about three miles northwest of the Alexander Bridge, swinging around in front of the rebels who had forded the river below us at Dalton's Ford. It soon began to grow dark. Mounted infantry is supposed to do its fighting from the ground, but this time we were so hard-pressed, and the emergency so great, that we remained on our horses, ready to fall back rapidly if the pressure became too great. We did not know, but at any minute the enemy might appear at the right or left out of the darkness. My horse was not accustomed to my firing from his back, and every time I would fire, he would jump so that he would nearly throw me off. It was dark enough so that I could see the fire stream from the muzzle of my gun every time I shot. Soon we had the rebel advance checked. Then we dismounted, and our horses were taken to the rear, while we lay down with our guns beside us. No one was allowed to go to sleep. Everyone must be alert, ready to seize his gun and shoot at a moment's warning. Private Theodore Petzoldt, 17th Indiana Infantry, Wilder's Brigade, Army of the Cumberland.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Bushwhacking on a Grand Scale, The Battle of Chickamauga, September 18th to 20th, 1863, by William Lee White.
1: This book is part of the Emerging Civil War series, and it's an excellent book to have at hand while you're walking the ground at Chickamauga or just sitting in your favorite chair at
0: home. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
1: Then, as we wrap things up, we'll give a quick but heartfelt thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, J.J. Biology, Frank E., Lane, Ann W., and Jacob D.
0: And thanks to Alfonso L. for his donation.
1: Last but not least, just a reminder that the music you hear at the beginning and at the end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care.
1: Thanks everyone. Bye.